KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the transformation of the Southern Baptist Convention into a powerful right-wing political force, a process that developed over the last 50 years. Before 1973, when abortion became a constitutional right, the Southern Baptists did not have a political position on abortion. Then came what they call the conservative resurgence. We call it the fundamentalist takeover. Sarah Posner will explain that history. Also, we have a new installment of The Children's Hour, stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and Little Eric. This week, Jared writes a book. He called it Breaking History. We'll have comment from our chief Jared correspondent, Amy Willens. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Good to be here, John. Well, our number one topic today is abortion politics. Lindsey Graham has proposed a Republican bill in the Senate that would create for the first time a law banning abortion nationwide. His proposal is for a 15-week federal ban. That's a lot more, in quotes, moderate than what Republican-controlled states have already imposed. Will this effort at moderation help Republicans in the midterms? I think the short answer is no way, but I, I can sort of understand in a sense, where Graham was coming from. The Republicans are getting clobbered on the abortion issue right now. Uh, most of their candidates in races that could go either way have already retracted what they said about abortion uh, uh, from their websites and, and, and such. Uh, and the news is dominated by the uh, just absurd draconian laws that various Republican states are passing, including earlier this week, West Virginia, which banned abortion, you know, essentially from the moment of conception. They struck the provision that had criminal penalties for doctors, but criminal penalties for anyone who helps a doctor. So if the doctor asks for, you know, some medical device, I suppose, in the course of an abortion, his or her nurse could face uh, criminal penalties for handing that device to the doctor. So anyway, that's what's in the news. So Lindsey Graham said, well, let's, 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 let's try to sound maybe a more reasonable note. But A, the Republicans are by no means uh, in lockstep, to put it mildly, with Lindsey Graham's proposal. And B, by opening the prospect of federal legislation, the real story is that, uh, you know, 100 million Americans who don't live in red states, who therefore wouldn't immediately be threatened by the revocation from the court of Roe v. Wade, now they're on the chopping block too. And if the Republicans take Congress and the White House in 2024, there's no guarantee that a more, uh, even, even a more preposterous proposal than Graham's will become the law of the land. So that actually, of course, is a message that helps the Democrats, not the Republicans in the upcoming midterm elections. And do you think he will have enough support among Republicans? No. Well, first of all, the Republicans don't have enough support to get a vote unless Chuck Schumer wants them to, which he clearly doesn't. 
But secondly, Mitch McConnell is already ducking this. Uh, the deputy to McConnell, the John Cornyn of Texas, says we already have state laws. No, I think I, I think the Republicans remain all over the map on this issue, which I suspect Lindsey Graham thought, well, maybe this can get at least Republicans in the same place. Well, Republicans have been so befuddled and completely undone by getting their demand of the last 50 years to repeal Roe v. Wade that, you know, they remain uh, all over the map and are clearly frightened by the implications of a policy which they have been championing for half a century. Other news on the abortion politics front, Michigan. Michigan had qualified an initiative to put abortion rights into the state constitution. It was turned down by an elections board on the argument that there were some spaces missing in the printed text of the initiative. The case went to the state Supreme Court, which rejected the actions of the state election board. And so Michigan will vote in November on making abortion rights part of the state constitution. I just want to quote briefly the majority opinion of the of the chief justice of the Michigan State Supreme Court, Bridget McCormack. Uh, she said the actions of the Republican members of the election board would, quote, disenfranchise millions of Michiganders not because they believe that many thousands of Michiganders who signed the proposal were confused by it, by the lack of spaces between some words, but because they think they have identified a technicality that allows them to do so. This is a game of gotcha gone very bad. Close quote, the majority opinion of the Michigan State Supreme Court. What are the political uh, implications of this being on the ballot in Michigan? Well, polling in Michigan uh, indicates support for abortion rights in the mid-60 percentiles. So A, this uh, measure uh, is clearly going to pass. B, it's supported by uh, all the uh, Democrats who are up for re-election in Michigan, Governor Whitmer, uh, Attorney General, Secretary of State, and so on. It's uh, actually all female statewide elected Democrats. Uh, who are already uh, in the lead in polling. And this, I think, will really ensure their reelection in a key swing state. Also, I mean, if I can extrapolate this out beyond the scope of your question. Please. Were Biden not to run for reelection in 2024, if uh, Gretchen Whitmer wins a decisive victory in Michigan, I think willy-nilly she becomes one of the people that Democrats will be looking to to run for president. And uh, one, one other element of this story, on Monday, more than 150 prominent Michigan Republicans, including the former head of the Michigan Republican Party, declared they were backing Democratic incumbent Governor Gretchen Whitmer for re-election because the current Republican Party of Michigan has turned into a far right-wing Trumpian organization, and they are... Uh, Republican candidate for governor, Tudor Dixon, opposes abortions without exception. Whitmer is currently, last time I checked, polling 13 points higher than Tudor Dixon. So this just adds to your, your argument that she's going to win and maybe win really big. Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle in California. 
starting with organizing Amazon in the Inland Empire. It's official. Workers at the Amazon Fulfillment Center in Ontario, ONT8, are organizing a union. The NLRB drive was announced last week by the people who we've talked about, I think, once before here. There was a coalition called United for Change, ONT8, during the pandemic that advocated for safer uh, working conditions at that warehouse. At the announcement this week, Chris Smalls, the guy who led the Amazon warehouse organizing on Staten Island and who you've done an event with recently, he came out to speak at the event announcing the union drive at, on, in the Ontario uh, Amazon warehouse. He said, quote, today we're bi-coastal. This is something that's really going to continue to grow just like Starbucks. And let's note that uh, the Inland Empire, as you have said here many times, is the nation's biggest warehouse center. Amazon is the region's largest employer. There's something like 40,000 logistics workers at Amazon warehouses in the Riverside and San Bernardino uh, counties. The second election was scheduled today by the NLRB in ALB1, the Albany Amazon warehouse where Chris Smalls's Amazon Labor Union has been organizing for some time. That election will take place in the first half of October. So that's coming up there. No, they, they haven't gotten the number of cards yet to have an election in ONT8, but it's really just the name of the warehouse <laughs> suggests how many warehouses Amazon has in the Inland Empire. They have at least eight in the rather small city of Ontario, which is includes a uh, uh, an airport, uh, Ontario Airport. Now, Amazon has, I think, 35 warehouses in that general area. So if they can win this, and if they can uh, get a contagion started in that Inland Empire concentration, which is a real challenge, and probably will require resources from the Teamsters for it to be serious. But if they can do that, that is a serious inroads because this is a key link in the supply chain that runs from goods from Asia, going through LA and Long Beach harbors, trucked to the Inland Empire, resorted and then distributed, uh, all, you know, pretty much everything west of the Mississippi through Amazon's distribution network. Amazon planes taking off from Ontario Airport. Right. And Amazon trucks going to Arizona, Nevada, California, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, et cetera. Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. Of course, that's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. The largest private sector nurses strike in American history has just begun in Minnesota. This week, 15,000 nurses at 16 hospitals have gone on strike for three days. They're on strike today. The key issues, they say, are understaffing and overwork. Uh, this is the Minnesota affiliate of National Nurses United. Uh, nurses have had a lot to complain about since the beginning of the pandemic. They have, and this is a chronic condition, as it were, uh, <laughs> in American hospitals of uh, staffing shortages. And when there's staffing shortages in an occupation like nursing, that means there are longer hours and an exhausted, at best, workforce. And so, you know, what these workers are going through and what has led them to strike is actually, sadly, a pretty common occurrence 
throughout the nursing profession. Uh, obviously, there were a lot of nurses who just burned out during the, the two years of severe COVID, and the hospitals have not found a way to uh, get enough new workers in. They Sometimes they didn't want to pay for that, so they just would prefer to have their workers go on longer hours. And, you know, they're human beings and they can only take so much. So they're out on strike. Yeah, you're right. It's not just Minnesota. 4,000 nurses with the Michigan Nurses Association voted earlier this month to authorize a strike over this same issue understaffing. And 7,000 healthcare workers in Oregon have also authorized a strike. University of Wisconsin nurses narrowly averted a strike this week. I was interested to see that the Minnesota nurses have a proposal that staffing levels not be set by management alone, but by committees made up of management and nurses at each hospital. This is a kind of a radical proposal. It is. In an odd way, there are some points there that are analogous to the sectoral bargaining legislation just uh, established into law through Gavin Newsom's signature in California. It goes back to uh, the great General Motors strike of 1946, when Walter Ruther essentially wanted workers to be part of the decision-making process at General Motors. All of this is reflective of a, a real rising militance, both then and now, among American workers. Uh, that, that, that's in more or less almost the, one of the periods we're going through right now, and we'll have to see where it comes out. Yeah, the Washington Post reported that the number of healthcare workers in the United States today is 37,000 less than in February 2020. It's a really astounding number of, of nurses quit after during and after the pandemic. Sure. And there are two distinct kinds of economic pressure here. One is that the public sector has not uh, kept up with the private sector uh, in general, across the board, not just in nursing, but in teaching, et cetera, in providing uh, comparable pay and benefits after decades of austerity uh, in the uh, public sector. And that for nursing in the private sector, so many hospitals are now parts of massive chains that are answerable to major shareholders, or worse yet, private equity. There are, quote, economies and austerities <laughs> there uh, so that uh, more money can go to the shareholders or the private equity guys. In or out of uh, the public sector, in or out of the private sector, there are real problems which, uh, you know, uh, worker power, the increase of worker power uh, could begin to address. And there's one additional factor in Minnesota. Minnesota overall has one of the tightest labor markets in the nation. The unemployment in rate in Minnesota right now is 1.8%. It's the lowest ever recorded for the state of Minnesota since federal labor statistics began tracking data. The national average right now is 3.7%. And there was a, a headline in the New York Times on Monday, pool of labor stays bafflingly low. Well, yeah. I mean, there were a lot of people who uh, stopped going to work during COVID, uh, particularly people 55 and older, who, uh, you know, just uh, said, okay, uh, you know, I've gotten by these last two years. I don't see a reason to go back to work. One statistic that was in that story, which just, I think, leaped out and, and, and pounded me on the head, was that of workers who were unemployed, over 40% of the men uh, have had arrest records 
and are, are considered employment risk. So the fact of uh, mass incarceration as an Ameri- a distinctly American strategy uh, is another factor in giving us a labor force that is not as large as it should be. And then there's still the prevalence of really low paying work, low paying, unrewarding, dead end jobs, which we ha- have been uh, brilliant at creating over the last 40 years uh, that, uh, you know, a, a lot of people just can't stomach. And so here we are with uh, uh, mainly men, a, a lot of prime age men, not in the labor force or some combination of all of those reasons. And then there's a new story in Los Angeles on Wednesday morning, part of the continuing battle to get LA County Sheriff Alex Villanueva under control and eventually out of office. Wednesday morning at 7 a.m., sheriff's investigators uh, searched the house of County Supervisor Sheila Kuehl. They said it was part of a criminal investigation into a county contract awarded to a nonprofit organization. Sheila Kuehl has been one of several critics uh, of the sheriff on the County Board of Supervisors. And uh, I know that the district attorney of LA County, George Gascone, has previously said of this investigation of Villanueva's, quote, he's only targeting political enemies, close quote, and the DA has refused to participate. Uh, You know a lot about L.A. political history. Have you ever seen anything like this before? Well, two of the most notorious chiefs of the LAPD, at least two of them, Bill Parker and Daryl Gates, uh, kept files on their political enemies and used them one way or another. The the story is told. I've never heard really definitive uh, verification, but the story is told that when Sam Yorty became mayor in 1965 after campaigning, saying a few you know, critical things about the LAPD, the LAPD had been collecting a file on Sam Yorty for 30 years, and Chief Parker visited his office and showed him what was in the file, and Yorty criticized the uh, uh, LAPD no more after that. Uh, that ended that. Villanueva's tactic seems uh, a, a little less artful, shall we say, <laughs> yes. than that. And it, you know, it politically, I think it may well be the dying gasp of a guy who's going to be voted out of office in November. And this certainly doesn't help his prospects in November. But it, it you know, it kind of shows just what a out of control thug uh, the guy really is. And uh, L.A. has a long history of uh, disgraceful leadership of its police agencies. And Villanueva already had a chapter. Now he has a chapter with one hell of a coda. News about out-of-control thugs in power in Los Angeles County from Harold Meyerson. Read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. There was a time when the Southern Baptist Convention was not the key force mobilizing the assault on abortion rights, and then they changed. The changes included a new activism against gay rights and a new insistence on wifely submission. 
The same history also saw the rise of sexual abuse and sexual assault by church leaders. For that history, we turn to Sarah Posner. She's the author of Unholy, How White Christian Nationalists Powered the Trump Presidency and the Devastating Legacy They Left Behind. It's out now in paperback with a new afterword about evangelicals and the January 6th insurrection. Sarah's a reporter with Type Investigations. Her work on the religious right has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Rolling Stone, and The Nation. Sarah Posner, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. Well, the Southern Baptists are the largest Protestant denomination in the United States and have been for a while. How big are they right now? Right now, they have about 14 million members on their membership rolls. It's down a little bit from the peak at about 15 or 16 million, but they're still the largest Protestant denomination. There was a time when Southern Baptists were not calling abortion genocide, when they were not campaigning, in their words more recently, to make abortion not only illegal, but also unthinkable. So return with us now to America before 1973. Of course, that was the year the Supreme Court declared abortion a constitutional right. Before that, what was the Southern Baptist position on abortion? Well, they either didn't have a position on abortion or their position was something along the lines of it was between the woman and her doctor. But well before Roe, it, it wasn't very common for evangelicals to have a specific position on abortion. And much to the consternation of some evangelicals who were opposed to abortion, and in particular to the architects of the religious right, they could not bring uh, evangelicals into the anti-abortion fold with Catholics. And so getting evangelicals, and in particular the very powerful Southern Baptist Convention, on board with that agenda was a key aim of the religious right. In the beginning, it was the Catholic Church that was the main political force campaigning to make abortion a crime. Of course, they were huge and well-organized, but also not successful in that Roe did pass. Why was the political power of the Catholic Church not equal to their numbers or their organization? Well, unlike evangel white evangelicals today, who are overwhelmingly anti-abortion, American Catholics then and now are very split on abortion. You have, you know, 70, 80% of white evangelicals being opposed to abortion today. Today, it's more like, you know, among white Catholics, it's, it's much more evenly divided, maybe like a little bit more on the side of being pro-choice. And that's also true among uh, Latino Catholics. One of the remarkable things about the formation of the religious right is it brought together Catholics and pro evangelical Protestants in a coalition that had never existed before due to, you know, anti-Catholic bias and other theological uh, rifts between the two, the, the two main branches of Christianity. Yeah, if you remember the 1960 election, John F. Kennedy, a Catholic running for president, there was huge anxiety among Protestants that the Pope would be in charge of what happened in the White House. And it was considered a triumph of American moderation that Kennedy could narrowly get right. elected. But Protestant opposition to Catholic power had been a central feature of American politics for a hundred years. And I think that's another reason why they weren't as effective 
on their own opposing uh, abortion in the United States. And maybe we should say a few words about the differences in the organization and structure of the Southern Baptist Church and the Catholic Church. Just to be absolutely clear, not all evangelicals are Southern Baptists. It's just that the Southern Baptist Convention, being the largest denomination, carries a lot of weight in its official pronouncements because so many American evangelicals uh, belong to non-denominational churches where there is no structure or hierarchy at all. So like the pronouncements of the Southern Baptists have and still do carry a lot of weight uh, among evangelicals and in the Republican Party. But the Southern Baptist Convention is um, structured more like a fellowship of churches. There is no pope, so to speak, and there is no hierarchy of cardinals and bishops and priests. You know, the churches are much more independent, even though most of them hew to the pronouncements of the body as a whole. And in fact, during the period of the radicalization of the Southern Baptist Convention, some churches were kicked out because of their lack of adherence to uh, those pronouncements, including on issues of uh, LGBTQ rights and so on. But it is in terms of just their day-to-day operation of their churches, much less hierarchical than the Catholic Church. Well, your new piece for the nation provides really an indispensable history of the transformation of the Southern Baptist Convention, a transformation that included not only their stance on abortion, but also on gay rights and on what they politely called wifely submission. But let's start with abortion rights. What were the key steps in this transformation? Around the time of the late 1970s, when the conser- what, the, what the conservatives call the conservative resurgence inside the Southern Baptist Convention and its critics call the fundamentalist takeover of the Southern Baptist Convention, what happened over the 1970s and 80s is as the conservatives gained control of the denomination as a whole, gained control of all of the uh, officer positions within it, purged people who were in disagreement with their fundamentalist theology, the official statements of the convention called resolutions that are adopted each year at their annual meeting became more and more radical on the issue of abortion. So the takeover really began in 1979. In 1980, they called for banning abortion except to save the mother's life. So that was actually a more liberal position than they took in 1984 when they called it a national sin. By 2003, They were praying for the day when the act of abortion will not only be illegal, but also unthinkable. And then by 2015, when this conservative resurgence had been in place for decades, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention was officially calling abortion a genocide. And, And this was not just an intensification of the ideology. You say it followed a change in leadership. This is what they called a conservative resurgence. You use the term fundamentalist takeover, which sounds uh, more appropriate to me. How exactly did that come about? How was it organized and why did it succeed? Well, it succeeded through an exercise of raw political power. So basically what happened was there were Southern Baptists within the movement who were, you know, biblical literalists, fundamentalists, whatever you want to call that. They were concerned and worried in their view that along with changes in the secular culture, the denomination was becoming more liberal and wasn't adhering to what they would call a literal view of the Bible. Um, And so they sort of zeroed in on this biblical literalism issue 
that there were people within the denomination who perhaps were not taking seriously the their claim that the Bible is 100% true. And so uh, two people, Paul Pressler, who at the time was an appellate court judge, state appellate court judge in Texas, and a Southern Baptist layman, and uh, Paige Patterson, who was within the denomination, a very respected uh, theologian, they joined up together. They very famously met at the Café du Monde in New Orleans to hatch out this plan to go across the country and get the people, they're called messengers, who go to the annual meetings, convince them to vote for these biblical literalist candidates for official positions within the denomination. And they press this kind of like, you know, the same, in a similar way that the uh, Christian coalition would later operate by like enlisting people to vote for these more radical candidates. And they, you know, basically seized control of the nominating uh, and electoral process within the denomination at the meeting. And then they were able to get these uh, fundamentalists elected. And that over time changed the course of the of the denomination. And every president since then has, you know, pledged adherence to this biblical inerrancy and to conservative resurgence as, you know, the greatest thing that ever happened to the Southern Baptist Convention. Abortion was only one of the central issues of the fundamentalist takeover. Uh, Let's talk about Matthew Shepard. Yes. You know, one of the things about the takeover was that homosexuality was a complete sin, no ifs, ands, or buts. Later, that would evolve into opposition to same-sex marriage. But when this first started, um, that that wasn't even on the table. So in the mid-2000s, after the torture and murder of Matthew Shepard, the gay college student in uh, Laramie, Wyoming, Congress was debating an anti-hate crimes bill named for Matthew Shepard. The Southern Baptist Convention, so you know, this was not really about LGBTQ rights or same-sex marriage or anything like that, but they adopted a resolution urging lawmakers and then President George W. Bush not to support this legislation because, quote, the Bible is clear in its denunciation of homosexual behavior. So they were opposed to a bill that would prevent murderous hate crimes against gay people because the Bible is clear in its denunciation of homosexual behavior. And they also claimed that hate crimes laws would be used to punish Christians who voice their uh, religious objection to homosexuality. And they succeeded. The Matthew Matthew Shepard hate crimes bill did not become law until Barack Obama was president. And all this went along with a growing political activism of the Southern Baptist Convention. The key moment seems to have been 1979. The presidential election of 1980 was coming up. The the incumbent president was a Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher named Jimmy Carter. Right. Um, and he was challenged by Ronald Reagan, the governor of California. What exactly was Ronald Reagan's uh, religion? Uh, what was it? We don't <laughs> yeah. remember, right? But Jimmy Carter represented exactly the kind of Southern Baptist that the Southern, the, the conservative, resur- the architects of the conservative resurgence wanted expelled from the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, that kind of, uh, you know, liberal politics, liberal theology. So this 
coalescing around Ronald Reagan was the end result of the religious rights early organizing, the formation of the moral majority, the bringing of evangelicals and Catholics together into this religious right operation. Reagan was their chosen figure, much like, you know, Trump would be uh, four decades later. And Southern Baptists played a very important role in that organization of the religious right around Reagan and then the Republican Party as a whole. And then 20 years later, Jimmy Carter left the Southern Baptist Convention. It was in 2000. He said it was because of the policy on wifely submission and the decision by the convention at their 2000 national meeting that women should no longer serve as pastors. Let's talk about wifely submission. So that is a a theology that's also known as complementarianism. It's based on a verse in Ephesians about that talks about how the wife must submit to the husband as he is the head of the household. And a lot of defenders of complementarianism say that outsiders misread it, that it's really about just like that the wife and husband have different roles in the household. And it's not just that she submits to him, that she can have her say on certain things. But it's obviously pretty clear, (laughs) like (laughs) it says she must submit to her husband. And that's what they said in the um Uh, the official resolutions that the Southern Baptists adopted. And this is very much reflected also in their ongoing refusal to allow women to have preaching roles within the church. And other Southern Baptists have left the the denomination over the same opposition. Uh, Beth Moore, who is a very prominent um, Southern Baptist uh, speaker, author. She's very popular among evangelical women. And she recently left over the um, refusal to allow women to preach. Jimmy Carter's statement was, quote, I'm familiar with the verses they have quoted about wives being subjugated to their husbands. In my opinion, this is a distortion of the meaning of scripture I personally feel the Bible says all people are equal in the eyes of God. I personally feel that women should play an absolutely equal role in service of Christ in the church. Close quote, Jimmy Carter, 2000. Jimmy Carter is still reviled by right-wing evangelicals, you know, as as probably one of the worst presidents America has ever had, right? Um, And this, I think, is very much because... He was a Southern Baptist of the type that they were that they were aiming to drive out of the denomination. So we started out by saying that the Southern Baptists used to be different 50 years ago. They were not obsessed with stopping all abortions. Is it possible they could be different again? At the most recent meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, which was in Anaheim a couple of months ago, In response to all the terrible news about the sex abuse scandal, some leaders were elected who were not hardliners. Do you think the sex scandals could lead to a change in the Southern Baptist activism on abortion? No, absolutely not. They do not see these things as being connected to one another. They do not see their opposition to abortion or LGBTQ rights or their support of these patriarchal theologies like complementarianism. They don't see this as being in any way whatsoever connected to the sex abuse scandal, nor do they acknowledge 
that the two people who were the engineers of the conservative uh, resurgence, the fundamentalist takeover, um, were themselves implicated in the sex abuse scandal. Uh, Paul Pressler has been accused by multiple men of having raped them or attempted to rape them or come on to them over a multi-decade period, um, even as he was pressing for um, opposition to LGBTQ rights and, and calling you know, homosexuality an abomination. And Paige Patterson is one of the main promoters of the uh, complementarianism. And he, notwithstanding being uh, expelled from his seminary because it came to light that he had you know, counseled rape survivors there to like, you know, not come forward to the police and that, you know, women continue to preach that women should be submissive. Let's just make this clear. This is women who survived rape by their Southern Baptist pastors. Right. Right. Or fellow seminarians. And uh, yes. And so he, he is not seen in a negative light by many Southern Baptists. He was at the most recent meeting in Anaheim. He recently spoke um, at the church of Robert Jeffress, who is a very prominent um, Southern Baptist and a a big supporter of Donald Trump. Um, And he was greeted and and portrayed as like one of the greatest Southern Baptist leaders ever. For one thing, they do not connect the theology with the sex abuse. And for another, they have a really hard time acknowledging either that their revered leaders were involved in the sex abuse or that their revered leaders turned a blind eye to it or covered it up. They tend to think of it in very sort of narrow, well, there were a few bad apples and maybe we need to do something about um, addressing these few bad apples, but it's not seen as an overall systemic problem. Your closing thoughts. I think something that was really interesting to me in the wake of the sex abuse scandal and, you know, relates to your question about are Southern Baptists going to change now was that the outside company they hired to perform the investigation of the, of the sex abuse scandal, Guidepost Solutions, it has come under attack by Southern Baptists on social media because uh, during Pride Month, they, I can't remember what it was exactly that they they made a statement on their Twitter account or their Facebook about supporting Pride Month or something like that. Um, and so a lot of Southern Baptists thought that that proved that this was the sort of, you know, independent investigators that Southern Baptists shouldn't trust because this was a company that supported LGBTQ rights. So I feel like there's a lot of sort of excuse making and refusal to see how all of this connects together. And it just shows how these fundamentalist theologies become so entrenched that outsiders are not trusted at all. So this company that's well known for doing these kinds of internal investigations of sex abuse is dismissed because they support Pride Month. Sarah Posner, she wrote about the Southern Baptist Convention's deal with the devil for The Nation magazine. You can read her at thenation.com. Thank you, Sarah. This is great. Thanks so much, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. 
Now it's time for another episode of the Children's Hour. Stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric. Today, Jared writes a book. He called it Breaking History. For comment, we turn to our chief Jared correspondent, Amy Willens. She's best known for her work on Haiti, most recently the award-winning book Farewell Fred Voodoo. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and former Jerusalem Bureau Chief of The New Yorker. She's also a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow, and she teaches in the literary journalism program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Thanks. Jared opens his book by saying he, quote, hopes it enhances our shared journey, close quote. What is he talking about? That is so Jared speak. Jared has a new age side to him that really comes out in this book. Our shared journey. I think, well, what he's talking about is his hoped for readers. And he hopes that the people who were on the journey with him already, that is to say Trump supporters, will be reading this book because believe me, they are going to be the friendliest readership this book is going to have. And they're not known for their you know, deep dedication to reading. So I don't know who they are, but I'm sure it will be a bestseller. I'm sure it already is. Well, let's start at the end of the story, January 6th. We know Ivanka was backstage that day at the Stop the Steal rally, where Trump called on the armed mob to march on the Capitol. And then we know Ivanka spent the afternoon in the White House trying to get Trump to call off the attack. What does Jared say about his day of January 6th? He was returning from having brokered a deal in the Arab world to uh, lift sanctions against Qatar. Um, This was very important to him. And he was on a plane returning from that, one of his many, many triumphs that's detailed in this book, while back home, the president was encouraging the Capitol riot, but not according to Jared. According to Jared, he never encouraged the violence. He doesn't even consider that he might have encouraged it. He never It never entered Trump's head that violence could happen at this uh, demonstration. Yeah, what he writes is, um, quote, it is clear to me that no one at the White House expected violence that day. I'm confident that if my colleagues or the president had anticipated violence, they would have prevented it from happening, close quote. That is clear to him. Is that clear to you? No, of course not. We watched it. I guess he didn't have a TV on his plane. But what we saw at the very least was that the president never called in the National Guard when the National Guard should have been called in. But I mean, from then ongoing discussion of what happened on that day, we know that the president was perfectly happy to encourage them. He gave a speech encouraging them. He told them to go and stand up for, you know, their rights. And what did he say? Go wild. It's going to be wild. Let's get wild. It's It's going to be wild. Wild Wild is not relaxed and peaceful, (laughs) especially when it's Trump supporters. And and we know from that final hearing of the January 6th committee that he didn't call them off until it was clear two hours after the attack, more than two exactly. hours after the attack began, that they were losing to the to the police. Only then did he call off the attack on the Capitol that Ivanka had been trying to get him to do for hours. Right. He does say at one point in the book, let's see, the three rules of Trump, controversy elevates message, when you're right, you fight, never apologize. And I think that's that also speaks to the January 6th 
uh, methods of Trump. Controversy, encourage them to go in there and do whatever they want to do. And then don't stop them. When you're right, you fight. So he thinks he's right. He's going to fight and don't apologize. And I, I think Jared goes right along with that. And the only thing he has Ivanka doing is helping to craft Trump's post-riot message. Uh, nothing really about her trying to get him to sort of intervene in, in this situation and stop it. He says he and Ivanka helped write the speech Trump gave on January 7th, which he quotes almost at the very end of the book. Yeah. He quotes Trump saying in the words that he and Ivanka wrote for Trump, quote, the demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defiled the seat of American democracy to those who engaged in acts of violence and destruction. You do not represent our country. This moment calls for healing and reconciliation. We must revitalize the sacred bonds of love and loyalty that bind us together as one national family close quote. Uh, I think this is a little trouble for Jared right now promoting the book since Trump has said he wants to pardon all the people who have been convicted and sentenced to prison for attacking police right. officers and so on. Exactly. I mean, the end of the book is all about how Ivanka militated for pardons for decent people who had been wrongly, uh, wrongly imprisoned, or wrongly convicted. Does Jared agree with Trump's claim that the 2020 election was stolen and that Donald Trump should be president today? He doesn't say anything about that. He doesn't say that he agrees with Trump, that Trump should still be in the White House. He doesn't say he shouldn't be. He just doesn't address the central controversy that actually caused the January 6th riots. He only addresses the riots as though they happened in a vacuum. Jared's biggest achievement, in his view, was bringing peace to the Middle East. Uh, a lot of people may have missed this story, the Abraham Accords, where uh, two Arab states signed an agreement to recognize the state of Israel. And which two countries were at the White House for signing the Abraham Accords? It was the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, um, and afterwards Morocco and Sudan signed on as well. I was not aware that Bahrain, Sudan, Morocco, and the UAE were important to uh, peace in the Middle East. I thought it was more Saudi Arabia versus Iran. Uh, why does Jared think this is, this is peace in the Middle East, which no other president was able to achieve? Because he knows that those countries are Muslim. He's very close to Israel. And so he feels that an arrangement in which some Muslim countries that he may have heard of before he went to the White House, <laughs> um, have agreed to deal with Israel as a legitimate government. So to him, that's peace in the Middle East. And, and it was framed as such in the mainstream media in many publications, like Tom Friedman's column. So one of the things Jared says in here is that because he is not an expert and has no expertise or, or you know years of dealing with this, he was able to see that you didn't need to have the Palestinians be a party to this and agree to it before it could be done. But his interpretation is completely flawed and his even his expression of what he felt, I believe is wrong. What he really felt was he doesn't want the Palestinians to be part of it because Israel doesn't want the Palestinians to be part of it. And therefore the Palestinians weren't gonna be part of it. 
and that, you know, he would throw some bones to the Palestinians uh, on the West Bank of jobs, job support. But that was that. And then that he would make deals with these uh, Arab nations who are, haven't really been completely vested in the Palestinian cause in the first place. Sudan and Morocco come to mind. <laughs> and Bahrain. The larger issue, of course, is defending Trump, his father-in-law. This is not easy. We have, you know, the excess Hollywood tape. We have separating children from their parents at the border. We have calling Mexicans criminals and rapists. We have minimizing the COVID threat. What is Jared's general approach to defending his father-in-law on all of these bad things that Trump did? He defends him in a way that, to me, is hilarious, especially the rapist thing. So he talks about um, how Trump gave this speech and the speech had been written for him. But because Trump is great, he gave his own speech on immigration and just talked off the cuff, speaking to the real feelings of the American people and calling Mexican immigrants rapists. And he said the reason he called them rapists was he talked to some guy who was at Border Patrol guy some, you know, officer, nobody, officer, nobody who said, you know, a lot of these guys are rapists and criminals. So Trump put that in the speech on immigration. <laughs> and he said, Trump often does this. Then he went to the post office and the post office had a plan for a million dollar revamp of the post office headquarters so they could have air conditioning. And then he talked to some electrician who was involved in working on the project. And like, they don't need to do this. They could just put a fan in the basement and blow up the cold air. So Trump, you know, abandoned the whole plan for the post office air conditioning. Jared makes it into, you know, all of the biggest mistakes into virtues. That's what he tries to do. And then, of course, we're always interested in the, in the personal stuff. And he knows that the very first chapter of the book is about his father going to jail when he is young. We know this story pretty well, but how does he tell it? He tells it as if he were a young black kid whose father was wrongly accused of something and he had to go and visit dad in prison all the time and how it harmed his life. But it showed him that his dad was strong. Yet what Charlie Kushner was accused of and convicted of were really abominable <laughs> crimes, including the uh, hiring of a prostitute and the taping of the prostitute with his brother-in-law. Which he then gave to his sister. Which he then gave to his sister, his brother-in-law's wife, for reasons of uh, uh, financial revenge. So, you know, it doesn't really sit well, the defense. He never says, my father was did wrong things. And we do know that his father pledged uh, $2.5 million to Harvard, after which they admitted Jared. Does he thank his, his father for this in the book? No, no, because <laughs> he doesn't want people to know that. But, you know, there I would have to say, Harvard, <laughs> was that right of you? Mm. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, we're very interested in, he knows we are very interested in his romance with Ivanka. He's happy to tell us how great it was wooing her. But there was this crisis where he told her that they had to break up because she was not Jewish and he couldn't marry someone who is Jewish. And then we know that she agreed to convert and she studied to become an Orthodox Sabbath observant Jew. How does he tell that story? Well, you know, I don't want to dismiss her conversion because I happen to know that it's really hard to convert to Orthodox Judaism. and You do have to study, but the way he tells it, he doesn't want to get into that, of course. That's too Jewish. 
So he's, this is what he says. We began meeting with a rabbi and studying and practicing Shabbat together. I saw that Ivanka was enjoying these rituals. After a few Friday evenings eating takeout from Second Avenue Deli, my favorite New York deli, Ivanka decided she wanted to learn how to cook to make our Friday nights together more special. She loved it and quickly became an excellent chef. And that That's is it. it. That is it, really. <laughs> and and not only does that make you wonder about Ivanka's conversion, like she wants to learn how to cook for Shabbat, it actually sounds like Ivanka didn't know how to cook at all. You know, he has this part close to the beginning where he talks about the books that influenced him. And, oh, and he lists Sun Tzu's Art of War. Can you know, you the the classic that you know every politician every high school kid every politician everyone has it on their desk and he says so he learned the art of war from the great chinese classic but the war that he's talking about is not dealing with you know north korea or iran or nuclear or weapons or china or nuclear weapons he's talking about dealing with steve bannon and you know a lot of the book is about the internal fighting between him and people like Steve Bannon. So that's why I ask, who is this book for? Who wants really wants to read 500 pages of Jared explaining his battles with Steve Bannon and then why he deserves credit for all the great things that he did? I'm not sure that the that the Trump base really cares about Jared very much. I don't think they do. I do think that the Trump base is like, um, you know, it's a cult of personality. So that the people who would read this from the Trump base would just want to be seeing things about Trump. And they would figure that Jared would have things about Trump in here. And he has things about Trump. You know, you can't tell how deep they are because he is, seems to be an extremely, uh, superficial person from reading this book. But um, other than that, I would think it's, you know, it almost reminds me of books that older people write about their lives that they then uh, get someone to put between hard covers and they make them for their grandchildren. <laughs> and that would be the audience. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. The reviewer for the foreword said he almost felt sympathy for Jared after reading this book. I, I wonder if that's the way you felt. Well, I, you know, I kind of love the book, although, of course, it's way too long. But it's, it's depiction of this feckless, no-nothing, uh, no, no, no uh, interfering <laughs> at the highest levels of American government and the way he's shunted around by everybody, but he doesn't seem to be aware of that. People are always saying to him, thank you, Jared, go sit over there. <laughs> <laughs> and he thinks that's a great compliment. I'm in the room. And he said, thank you. And they're important. It's, it's really like that. But then of course he has access to the president. So they have to be nice to him and he you know he's around so they have to be nice to him and he's always sort of he rushes in like robin to trump's batman and he goes and you know he's like the messenger boy he always has a note in his pocket from someone smart that he's bringing across the way to someone else smart but he's never the guy who's smart but he he depicts himself as a top negotiator at the end of trump's meeting with kim jong un the chairman comes out to talk to the people around and jared's one of them and he says to Jared, thank you so much for putting me in touch with Mike Pompeo. And like Jared goes on for three paragraphs about 
how he got him in touch with Mike Pompeo. But the guy didn't want to talk to Jared. <laughs> and Jared at one point said, oh, talking to him will be as good as talking to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been another episode of the Children's Hour. Stories about Ivanka, Jared, Don Jr., and little Eric with Amy Willens, our chief Jared correspondent. Amy, thank you for reading Jared's book. I know it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy, but that's not because the vocabulary is difficult. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music